Well, happy Easter again. Um, I wanted to begin today with a confession, and uh, I, I aspire uh, for us to make this time we gather together every Sunday to be some of the most honest time in our week. And so I want to begin with a confession, and that confession is, is that I can be judgy. And there's a specific area in life where I, my judginess comes out really strongly, and that's in the bathroom. Because if you're in the bathroom with me and you don't wash your hands when you leave, you just need to know that I'm judging you. Um, and, uh, and it's especially bad when I go to sporting events. Like, it's just, oh, I just, something inside of me is beginning to boil right now. Like, how many people just don't wash their hands? It's so simple. It's so easy. And, uh, and a lot of us have, have paid more attention to washing our hands in the last 13 months. I mean, we've learned. I mean, I, I thought I knew how to wash my hands, and then I learned that I didn't. You know, apparently I was missing, like, my fingernail and my fingernail beds and in between. I mean, I just—and I always skip my thumb. I mean, just because I was judgy about it doesn't mean I was good at it, you know? But, but I, I've, I've definitely made progress. And I, I did some study at some point in the last year to kind of learn when did we get into washing our hands. And I discovered something that I didn't know and a lot of people I talked to didn't know, that, that we have somebody to thank for this. And his name is Dr. Ignatz— Zemmelweis. Ignatz Zemmelweis. Uh, I'm probably not pronouncing that right. I, I did some practice, but, but Dr. Ignatz was a Hungarian physician. And in his town, there was a particular hospital where people were just dying at an unprecedented rate. And he began to study, you know, why are we seeing so many people dying? And his hypothesis that he began to study and he believed what was true is that the doctors in that hospital were not washing their hands. And so, so he just became convinced that, that it was kind of his life mission to inform his fellow physicians that they could save their patients if they would wash their hands. And he got an incredibly negative reaction. See, all of these other physicians, they felt insulted. They felt like Dr. Ignatz was, was basically calling them dirty and disgusting and gross. And they all said, hey, our, our hands are clean. We don't need to wash them. And Dr. Ignatz says, no, no, you're killing your patients because you're taking your dirty, germy hands from person to person, and you're literally killing people. And he became more and more convinced. He became more and more emphatic. And yet no one would listen to him. History tells us that Dr. Ignatz Zemmelweis died in an insane asylum because no one believed him that we had to wash our hands. Well, 20 years after Dr. Ignatz died in that insane asylum, a man named Louis Pasteur began developing what was known as his germ theory, building on the research of little-known Dr. Ignatz Semmelweis. And Dr. Louis Pasteur's germ theory began to convince physicians, and over time, they began to wash their hands, and now all of us today, we wash our hands. But I, I was thinking about Dr. Ignatz today. I hope I don't end up in an insane asylum for the things that I believe. But the belief that Jesus rose from the dead is not universally held. Lots of people today will celebrate Easter. They'll have ham. They'll wear pastels. They will consume those god-awful candies known as peeps. I can't decide which one I'm more emphatic about, my belief in the resurrection or my hatred of peeps. It's kind of like 1A, 1B. It's, it's right there. 
People keep giving me Peeps toys, and I keep selling them on eBay because I just don't want those in my house. I don't need that kind of influence around my kids. Um, but the belief in the resurrection is not universally held. In fact, there's lots of people who don't believe that Jesus did rise from the dead. But beginning in the first century A.D., about A.D. 35, there was a man named Paul who'd been a persecutor of the early followers of the way of Jesus. And he had an encounter, he had a, what he called a vision on the road from Jerusalem to the city of Damascus in modern-day Syria. And he came back to Jerusalem a couple years later and met with people who'd been with Jesus. And Paul wrote down what they had told him. It's recorded in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Where he said, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, what he received from People like James and John and Peter. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, which is another term for Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James his brother, and then to all the apostles. This section of 1 Corinthians 15, scholars believe, goes all the way back to three years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's the earliest recorded creed or statement of faith of Christianity. And it is this belief that launched the church into the world as a worldwide movement that is still impacting the world today. And it was that belief that they passed on that somehow found its way to us. Today, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about three questions. Three questions that I think form up this day and how we interact with it. And they're going to be honest and hopefully helpful questions for you. The first one we're going to start with is what if it's not true? Because I don't want to assume that everybody in this room or everybody watching online believes, and I want to be humble and honest with you intellectually about the consequences of the resurrection. Two, we'll talk about why is it true that Jesus resurrected. And then three, we'll talk about the consequences. So what if it is true? What does that mean for us today? We're going to start here with this maybe difficult question for you if you're a follower of Jesus, but... Just hang with me. I think you'll understand in a little bit. The first question we're going to talk about is, what if it's not true? If you're here today and you're somebody who you're not sold on Jesus, you're not a believer, you're, you're maybe a skeptic or a cynic, maybe you're just kind of exploring things, maybe somebody invited you to watch from home or be here today, I just want to encourage you that, that if you're going to go after Christianity, this is the spot to pick. This is the bullseye on the target. You're playing the game Jenga, which we have out in the uh, lawn outside for after the service. It's that piece in the Jenga game that once you pull it, the whole thing falls down. It's the central foundational belief that makes Christianity what it is. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in answer to the question, what if it's not true? He says, moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God. 
because we testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who've fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Those are pretty high stakes. Those are pretty large consequences if Jesus Christ was not resurrected. Let me flesh those out, maybe in more specific terms. Paul says if Jesus Christ was not resurrected, then the faith of his followers is worthless. And let me remind you, that's not a small number of people. Today, it's about 2 billion people worldwide. Going back 2,000 years, you're adding millions, hundreds of millions, maybe other billions to that. He says if Jesus Christ has not been resurrected, everybody who says he was, everybody who calls themselves a Christian or a follower of Jesus, what you have in terms of your faith is worthless. He says if Christ was not resurrected, there's no hope for forgiveness of sins. That thing that you did, that you wish you didn't do, that you wish you could undo. Sorry. No second chances here. No forgiveness. No fresh start. No new beginning. If Christ was not resurrected, there's no hope for eternal life. Eat, drink, be merry. Because when you die, it's lights out. It's over. No hope. This is all there is. And if Christ was not resurrected, he said, his followers should be pitied more than anyone else. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, people should feel sorry for us suckers who've given our life to something that's a total sham. I, I begin here because that's how serious the resurrection is. If it didn't happen. It's everything. It's the reason why. That's why it's so much bigger than just one day in the year. In our culture, Christmas occupies this kind of sacred level. We prepare for it for a month. <laughs> we go into massive debt to celebrate it every year. We've got incredible expectations around it. But let me tell you, it is Easter, not Christmas, that is the linchpin of our faith. So if you're not a believer, get your bow and arrow and shoot at Easter. Because if it's not true things are pretty bad. But if you'll indulge me, if you're not a believer, I, I want to go from there to why I believe it's true. And the first reason I believe the resurrection of Jesus happened is that Jesus really lived. You can fight about whether or not he came back from the dead, but if you're going to say he didn't live, you're going to find yourself in a very small group of people. Because even those who are atheists and agnostics and have nothing to do with faith acknowledge that Jesus really lived. In the 1800s, a historian named H.G. Wells said, I'm a historian and I'm not a believer. Let me get that clear. Not a believer. 
But I must confess that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus is easily the most dominant figure in human history. So you can say you don't believe he was God, you can say you don't believe he rise from the dead, but you can't say that he didn't live. That, that decision has already been made universally. Number two, I believe Jesus also really died. And this is where people begin to kind of go in different directions. Some people have bought into a belief called the swoon theory, that Jesus didn't actually die, he just had a really bad fainting episode. That lasted a couple days. You know, like you normally have. You faint and you're, you know, you wake up two days later. But the problems with this are not just theological, they're medical. I'm going to read to you something from the Journal of the American Medical Association. Let me be clear. This is not from some Christian pamphlet. This is from the Journal of the American Medical Association. Dr. William Edwards says, Clearly the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Not at odds with modern Christian preaching, not at odds with the Bible. Those who believe that Jesus did not die on the cross are at odds with modern medical knowledge. It's, it's actually very credible intellectually to believe that Jesus really lived and really died. Let's talk about Jesus coming back from the dead for a second. Why, why would you believe that this is true? Well, there's lots of reasons. We'll talk about later on in the service a place that you can go. We've put together a resource list if you want to do some more study on this. But one of the reasons that I believe that Jesus really did come back from the dead has to do with how we started this service. I, I invited Stephanie down here so that she could be the first person today to announce to you here that Jesus was risen. Because on the very first day, Easter Sunday, the first Easter Sunday, when Jesus was resurrected, the first person to announce that he was risen was the women. The women went to the tomb thinking they were going to finish preparing the body of Jesus who couldn't fully have been dealt with because of how late it was on the Sabbath on Friday evening. And they got there and they found the tomb empty and they encountered messengers from heaven who told them and interpreted for them, Jesus is not here. He's gone ahead of you. He's risen. One of them, Mary Magdalene, met him in person. And those women went out and announced that he was risen. Now, for us, that doesn't make a big difference because we live in 2021. But there is a revolution that has happened in the role and the view of women from the first century A.D. to today. And Dr. William Lane Craig explains this. He says, when you understand the role of women in first century Jewish society, what's really extraordinary is that the empty tomb story should feature women as the discoverers of the empty tomb. So, Tim, it's not, it's not extraordinary that Jesus came back from the dead. It's extraordinary that women were, talk, were there and that women told the story. He said women were on the very low rung of the social ladder in first century Palestine. There are very old rabbinical sayings from that time that said, let the words of the law be burned rather than delivered to women. 
And blessed is he whose children are male, but woe to him whose children are female. Women's testimony was regarded as so worthless that they weren't even allowed to serve as legal witnesses in a Jewish court of law. Women couldn't be witnesses. Women couldn't be on the jury. In light of this, Dr. Craig says, it's absolutely remarkable that the chief witnesses to the empty tomb are these women who are friends of Jesus. Any later legendary account would have certainly portrayed male disciples as discovering the tomb. Let me pause right there. If you were making this story up like a legend, you would go back and retell it. Yeah, it wasn't Mary. It was Bob. Bob was the one who was there. It's kind of like if you went fishing and you really caught one that was like this, and suddenly it's We tend to exaggerate and retell legendary stories. And if you were to do that with this story, you would not tell it this way. You would replace the women with men. He goes on to say, The fact that women are the first witnesses to the empty tomb is most plausibly explained by this reality that, like it or not, they were the discoverers of the empty tomb. So one of the reasons that I think it's reasonable to believe the resurrection happened is because of who told it. If in that day you're making up a story about Jesus rising from the dead, you would certainly not tell a story that way. Finally, third, fourth reason why it's true is that the disciples gave their lives for the belief in the resurrection. The one thing we all have in common today is all of us at some point in our life have lied. Anybody in the room not lied ever? Good, because I was going to say you're lying right now. But, but all of us have lied. The problem is, is that none of us are willing to give our life for a lie. Push comes to shove, gun to the head. No, I was lying. That isn't true. Except for the disciples. They believed in the resurrection so much that they were willing to die for it. Who dies for a lie? That's what convinced Chuck Colson of the resurrection. Colson was the hatchet man of Richard Nixon at the center of the Watergate scandal in the early 1970s. He went to prison for it. And he said it was the testimony and the martyrdom of the early disciples that convinced him that Jesus really had resurrected. He said that the 11 or 12 of us who were in on the Watergate conspiracy wouldn't hold to the lie for three weeks. And yet these 11 gave their lives for it decades later. If Jesus had not resurrected, then his disciples would not have testified to it so boldly. Listen to these words. After suffering the horrible abuse with all the catastrophic blood loss and trauma, this is the, this writer describing the crucifixion, Jesus would have never looked so Jesus would have looked so pitiful that the disciples would never have hailed him as a victorious conqueror of death. They would have felt sorry for him. Jesus, man, you had a rough day. Let me get you a doctor. They would have tried to nurse him back to health. Dr. Metherell said, So it's preposterous to think that if he'd appeared to them in that awful state, his followers would have been prompted to start a worldwide movement based on the hope that someday they too would have a resurrection body like this. There's just no way. 
So I know some people say that it's a fanciful, nonsensical, intellectually dishonest thing to believe in the resurrection. I just disagree. I think the evidence is there. Not from the Bible, but even outside of the Bible to affirm what the Bible says about Jesus. That he really did rise from the dead. Well, let's talk about what it meant for the disciples and that question that's at the center of this message. What if it's true? And the first thing that meant for them and can mean for you and me if it's true is that what happened to Christ can happen to us. See, the early disciples didn't just believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They believed that they themselves would experience the same thing. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, But as it is, Christ has been raised, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Paul here is using this image of a fruit bearing. And I moved to Phoenix uh, in the early 2000s. I lived there for about 15 years. And one of the things that I didn't know when I went to Phoenix is that stuff can actually grow there. I thought it was so God-forsaken hot, nothing could grow there. But in the center of Phoenix, before the city was developed, there was a massive, thousands of acres large citrus grove. And I discovered this because all of my friends started bringing me bags of citrus in the spring and the summer. They were bringing me bags of lemons and grapefruits and oranges. And I'm like, man, you're just so generous. I figured out they're not good people. They just have so much they have to get rid of it. And, and I was living in an apartment complex at the time, and we had this tree. Not that different from this one right here. I said, oh, man, we got an orange tree. I have my own little stash. Only I discovered when it first started, you know, putting out fruit, I went to bite into one of those oranges, and it was disgusting. It's called an ornamental orange, which basically means, look, don't touch. But see, that, that first set of fruit was an indication of, hey, all of the fruit that's going to come from this tree is going to taste like this. That's the image of first fruits. And that's what Paul is saying about Jesus. What happened to Jesus is not an isolated event that only gets to happen to him. Paul is saying that what happened to Jesus is one day going to happen to every one of his followers. First to him and then to us. The early disciples believed that resurrection wasn't just the Jesus thing. It was that through Jesus, it could be an everyone thing. Every person could experience the power of the resurrection. What if it's true they believed what happened to him one day is going to happen to us? Secondly, if it's true, we don't have to live in fear anymore. You would think the disciples would have been tremendously afraid. Most of them were incredibly uneducated, poor, working class, oppressed people living in the midst of the most powerful empire on earth. And yet, from history, we watch them live fearlessly. Quoting an early resurrection hymn, the Apostle Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is that because of the resurrection, we're going to live fearlessly. And they did. They faced down rulers, governors, emperors, 
People that from their social station should not have acted so fearlessly. William Barclay, in, in commenting on this, he says that Jesus promised his disciples three things. That they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. Because they were. It wasn't like being a follower of Jesus was the pathway to upward mobility. Some of the most poor people in Jerusalem in the first century were followers of Jesus. Paul here, who writes this letter to, to Corinth, he has to go around the rest of the empire collecting an offering to help these people even survive. And the future of these disciples who believed in the resurrection, it should have stirred fear in their heart. Peter, crucified, upside down. James, son of Alphaeus, stoned and clubbed to death. James, the brother of Jesus, stoned to death. John, the writer of the Gospel of John and Revelation, exiled to the island of Patmos. Paul, whose words we're reading today, beheaded in Rome. Other disciples were burned in vats of oil, eaten by dogs, flogged. None of them died in a way that was neat, pretty, easy. And yet all of them stood there in the face of death, fearlessly. If there's ever been a year that would instill fear in your heart, it's been this one. Because the things that we leaned on for safety and security were kicked out from under us. And I think it has exposed in many of our hearts that we have somewhere along the way replaced the gospel of Jesus with the gospel of the American dream. Our country promises us life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jesus promises us, yeah, you're going to be absurdly happy, but by the way, you're going to be in constant trouble. Because if that's what happened to him, and that's what happened to his disciples, whose lives are recorded in this book, why would we expect that we would be immune from and so if the resurrection is true, what it does is it offers us a way forward in the midst of even more challenging times, yet without fear. Third, if it's true, what we do here and now matters. Isn't that one of the struggles of, of, of human existence? Does my life matter would anybody notice if I'm gone? All these things I'm pouring blood, sweat, and tears into, are they going to matter? And this is what the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is where we have to remember that the early church wasn't just waiting for Jesus to come back and they were sitting on their laurels. What made their lives so compelling and authentic and genuine was that they were giving themselves to care for others and make a difference in their world as if what they did mattered. And it infuriated everybody else. One of the Roman emperors said this, these impis, Galileans, not only feed their own poor, but ours also, jerks welcoming them into their love, 
While the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity. What is it with these Jesus people? We don't even take care of our people like this, and they care for their own people and our people better than we do. No wonder we're losing them. Emperor Julian. Today, if there's a natural disaster in this country, if there's a hurricane, a tornado, an earthquake, if there's an ice storm, and disaster relief comes in, you'll see the name, the American Red Cross. You'll see that Red Cross come in. However, under the banner of the American Red Cross, the leading sources of volunteers for the American Red Cross will come from two places. The Salvation Army and Southern Baptist Disaster Relief. It is their faith that motivates them to show up in the midst of the most horrible human destruction. It is that that motivates followers of Jesus to take time off and go spend it serving other people. Some of you over the last year got food in your home, and it wasn't because you discovered Instacart. It was because somebody who's a follower of Jesus, who considers you part of their responsibility, showed up with food. If you go into a city that was founded when this country was founded on the East Coast, what you'll find are colleges and universities with charters attributing the founding of that hospital or that college to their faith in Christ. Travel the world, you'll find the same thing. Followers of Jesus who aren't just interested in telling you about the resurrection, they're interested in showing you what it means to live out the resurrection. And this is what happened in the early church. Historian Rodney Stark says this, To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. To cities faced with epidemics... They had those back then, too. Fire and earthquakes. Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. This is how Christianity changed the world. From 32 AD, when Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected, to 325 A.D. when Constantine becomes a Christian and the Roman Empire begins to shift to become a Christian empire. In those 300 years, a small group of uneducated, poor, powerless people began a journey that changed the world because of their belief in the resurrection. And the truth of Jesus' resurrection convinced them to live with hope and courage and conviction. And the same thing is possible today. What if it's true? Believing in it can lead you to live a life with hope and courage and conviction. If you're a believer in the resurrection, you should not be afraid that things are getting dark. 
should be recognizing that your calling is getting more significant. Christ said, you, my disciples, are the light of the world. Well, if the world is well lit, like this room is well lit, there's not a big need for light. But if we live in a world that is getting increasingly darker and more difficult, then the calling of resurrection people and their influence is becoming increasingly important. That what we do matters here and now, and our labor for the Lord is not in vain. If you've been around Cornerstone for any period of time, you know we end all of our messages with next steps. So if you've got a copy of the handout, you can turn it over on the back. And we've got these written for you. The first one is this. If you're wrestling with the resurrection, I would encourage you to do your homework. Go and research for yourself. Don't trust what some documentary you clicked past on cable said or what some magazine at the grocery store said. Don't even trust my word for it. You go do your homework. We put together a resource list for you. If you're here in the room, the link is on, is on the handout. If you're watching online, you can go to prescottcornerstone.com slash worship resources, and there's a green button there that says sermon extras. We've put together a list. We've kind of collated that of resources that talk about the intellectual and academic reasons to believe that the resurrection of Jesus is true. And I would just encourage you, if you don't believe it, do your homework. Don't take somebody else's word for it. This is too significant to trust somebody else's word. You go do your homework. Number two, if you're ready to live as a resurrection person, then I would encourage you to look for a place that needs resurrection hope and power. There are places all around us that are hopeless and in need of resurrection. That's where people who believe in the resurrection are called. That's what happened in the first century. Plague came in a city. People stepped out. Strife happened. Christians ran in. Needs abounded. Giving them an opportunity to live out their faith. So we're going to talk about next week this series called Rebuilding. We're all in a rebuilding season right now. And that rebuilding season offers us an opportunity to be people of hope who look to the one who resurrects dead things to begin to rebuild. Hopefully be with us next week. And then finally, if you're ready to believe in the resurrection for the first time, then I would encourage you to today, before you leave, put your trust in the resurrected Jesus and begin following him. Jesus, we thank you that you came for us. That you left heaven, you took on human flesh, you took the worst that humanity could throw at you, and the weight and the consequences of all of our sin and brokenness. And you conquered it by rising from the And today, you invite us to not just believe that a historical event happened in the past. You invite us to believe in your power to do the same thing in us. Not to make us good people who follow the rules, but to take us from a place of death and make us alive. Jesus, I believe that there are people in this room today, people watching online, who
who have never put their faith and trust in you, and over the last year, they've seen the things that they've put their faith and trust in be revealed as inadequate and shaky. They've been disturbed and unsettled and shaken. And I believe you've allowed that in their life so that they would be prompted to ask the question, what is worthy of building my life on? What am I going to look to for hope and meaning and purpose in this incredibly shaky world? And Jesus, I believe you are the only one who we can build our lives on and not be shaken. So if that's you, and today as you've been in this place or watching from home, you've been feeling God stirring in your heart, I want to invite you to put your faith and trust in the resurrected Jesus today. You could do that by praying a prayer with me. Jesus, I need to be made alive. I'm dead inside. And I need you to bring me to life. Thank you for coming for me. Thank you for dying for me. And thank you for resurrecting that I 